you can now talk about anything. You have got content that is about consciousness, health, nutrition, society and philosophy and politics and economy. And then of course you have your Web3 side of things. I think for a lot of people, that's really hard to navigate. I would not advise other people to do it. The fact that I am as eclectic as I am holds me back and I would be bigger if I could just really niche down and focus on one thing. And so people really do need to understand the realities of an algorithm and what the algorithm cares about. And my team is constantly haranguing me for saying yes to guests that aren't in a narrow niche. And so if somebody is gonna take a, a more diverse approach, the thing I will say is you must find some sort of organizing principle. The episodes that underperform for me are often ones I loved. I'm like, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time, but it's not in my narrow framework. And you really do have to figure out what is the thread that connects all of this. Hello, I'm Sami Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeak. My guest on today's podcast is the one and only Tom Bilio, a successful entrepreneur who built a billion dollar company in the health and nutrition space before starting his media venture, Impact Theory. Tom is now building a super interesting Web3 gaming venture called Project Kaizen. In this podcast, we talk about everything from his creative process to AI and Web3 gaming. I also wanted to let you know that Impact Theory has been kind enough provide a special offer to our listeners where you can access the Impact Theory University courses. These courses will empower you with the skills, mindset, and strategies that you need to achieve your goals and create a lasting impact. Now, without further ado, let's get started. Tom Bilio. So I have been so excited about this conversation. I've been watching your stuff and, you know, listening to your podcast for so long. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an honor to finally have you here. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> so, Tom, uh, I think everybody knows your story with Quest. And uh, if they don't know, they should go and check it out. I'm not going to take too much of the time of the podcast with this, because I want to pick your brain on things that are uh, really important to me as an entrepreneur uh, building in this crazy exponential age, as Raul will say, you know, and, uh, and and really, I tend to treat these conversations as more of a, a mentorship, because I know that the questions that I have are similar to the questions that a lot of other people have. So first things first, I wanted to ask you about how you build your brand in a way that you can now talk about anything. So like when we go to your podcast, you have got content that is about consciousness. You can bring in people like Dr. Peter Atia, you know, and talk about health. You have a lot of people who talk about nutrition. Then you have people like Yuval Noah Harari talking about society and philosophy and politics and economy. And then, of course, you have your Web3 side of things. That's something that really resonates with me as somebody who is ADHD, you know, who's like got this a lot of eclectic different inter uh, interests. Uh, so tell me, how did you build that brand? I think for a lot of people, that's really hard to navigate. Yeah, so I'll answer that in two ways. Um, I would not advise other people to do it. And I would say that the fact that I am as eclectic as I am holds me back and that I would be bigger if I could just really niche down and focus on one thing. And so people really do need to understand the realities of an algorithm and what the algorithm cares about. So I consider myself YouTube first, which means that I'm very much a slave to the algorithm. And my team is constantly haranguing me 
for saying yes to guests that aren't in a, in a narrow niche. But the problem was in the beginning, I only did empowerment and that was it. And it really got to the point where I was, I was very bored. It, it is one of the most important parts of my life, but to make it the, the only focus of the show, it got to the point where to find new guests all the time, I really felt like I could answer these questions better than a lot of my guests. And so that was getting very frustrating. And so I went to the team and I said, look, we either need to broaden the scope of the show or uh, you're going to lose me as a host because I just can't do this forever. And the great irony of that is watching bands that are always like, I don't want to play that kind of music anymore. I want to play new music. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we all love you for your old music. And just always thought it was dumb when they were like, yeah, but my heart wants to, you know, sing new songs. And I was always like, oh God, this person just doesn't get it. And then I find myself in the same situation going, yeah, even if there was more money for me on the other side of this, I just can't do it. And so as a human, I'm constantly evolving. And so I have had to, though, come up with an organizing principle. And so if somebody is going to take a, a more diverse approach, the thing I will say is you must find some sort of organizing principle. Now, I don't always adhere to that. And if you look, you can just see, like if you go to uh, Tom Bilyeu on YouTube, click videos, you can see which videos pop and which ones don't. This is a, Anybody that's trying to be a YouTuber should audit a lot of channels in this way. And you'll see what the audience likes will be the baseline, right? And then you'll see episodes that go way above and you'll see episodes that go way below, but you'll get a sense of the baseline. And the episodes that underperform for me are often ones I loved. I'm like, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time, but it's not in my narrow framework. And so the algorithm finds the audience that wants that kind of content. And you really do have to figure out what is the thread that connects all of this. So my thread in the beginning was empowerment. Uh, my thread for a while was more business oriented. And now the thread that holds everything together is dealing well with a changing world order. And this really kicked off for me in COVID when I realized, okay, wait a second, I'm going to be fine on the other side of this because I've already generated wealth. But a lot of the people that I love and care about are going to get annihilated. And this was before I understood the printing of money and how basically you can use uh, basically government approved counterfeiting to spread the burden across everybody until which point that you hyperinflate your currency and, and it devolves into madness. But anyway, I didn't understand it that, that at the time. And so I was like, people are really going to get obliterated by this. And I wanted to bring finance people on uh, that could help them navigate that moment well. And that ends up being, I, I couldn't see it at the time because I thought it was going to be so temporary, but that ends up being a turning point for the show. And what ends up happening is I realize, whoa, as I'm learning about finance, trying to help my audience, because I understood how to make money. I didn't know how to invest money. And so as I learned about finance and investing and just the nature of money, that opened up this entire rabbit hole for me. And the more I started going down it, because my mission in life is to help people uh, at the personal level. So I'm not a guy that tries, like if I'm going to impact society, it's it's entirely by focusing on the individual. That's my personal bent. It's what I'm passionate about. So that became the thread that held everything together. How do I help people navigate a moment where I think the next three years are going to be the most disruptive years ever barring war? And uh, hopefully we avoid war. Uh, so even if we do, 
this is still going to be the most disruptive um, period, certainly in any of our lifetimes, and almost certainly the most disruptive period since the 1930s and 40s. So how do we navigate that well? What does that look like? You and I have talked off camera about AI, like that's certainly one of the buckets. And so you find what those buckets are. So it's finance, it's crypto, it's um, sort of the edges of, of politics as I touch into new world order stuff. Um, it's Raoul Paul, it's, you know, the nature of money, it's all that kind of stuff. And so it can take many different forms and feel pretty eclectic, but it we are very hardcore about making sure that the guests, that there will be a lens through which this interview still will resonate with somebody who's trying to learn how to deal well with a changing world order. And if you don't have that kind of discipline, your channel won't grow. I have to say that with your channel, it kind of makes complete sense what you said, because it's like within your channel, you have your own branches of listeners. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of the way that you organize yourself around the algorithm. Do you think, I mean, surely there must be a better way, right? Like, I just wonder, you know how you're aspiring to build the next Disney? I'm aspiring to build the next, you know, social media, like in a token gated, decentralized Web3 version. But as we are finding Web3 is not growing the way that we are hoping. So I'm, I'm kind of like keeping an open mind in growing it in different ways. But I just have a problem with the way that the algorithm is set. And we had this conversation a little bit at VCon where you mentioned, I remember that you have to know the algorithm. And if you know the algorithm, you can grow around it. I hate that. That I hate the fact that we are that slave to the algorithm. The way I think about it, I'm building around the creators. It's like, if you like this creator. Tell me, don't, don't fall for it. So here's what is going to happen. Eventually people are following enough creators that you as an algorithm are going to have to make a decision what they see and what they don't see. And I think about this a lot as we're building out Project Kaizen. I'm like, okay, I'm building this universe. It's going to be a lot of communications, people that want to join you or what games are popping off or whatever. And you have to find a way to preferentially show people something because there's just too much content. So once you try to prioritize, you're in the algorithm game. And now guaranteed without question, that people are going to come in and say, um, how do I thrive on this platform, right? So if you create social media, all of us that want to publish content on your thing are going to be like, how do I reach the most people? And even if you were just a, a dumb algorithm that just, it's, it's all time-based, it's completely sequential. First of all, if you do that, nobody's going to use your platform. But even if you did that, I'm going to be trying to figure out like a day trader at what time of day do I need to post that maximize it? Like people are going to try to find ways to maximize the system. That That is just a guarantee that's baked into the human condition. And so you know you're going to have to be an algorithm. And as a creator, you know you're going to have to master the algorithm. And so then it becomes a question of, okay, is there an ethical line that we cross? So TikTok is so good. You can feel your brain enter a time warp. It's unreal, but if you're disciplined, you can get a lot out of it because it is really good from an interest graph instead of a following graph, utterly fascinating. So we all do have to think about, okay, I, I have a responsibility. I can't just be like, well, I'm gonna maximize the system no matter what that does to the people that use my system. But at the same time, you can't pretend that the algorithm isn't there for a reason, you can't like do all this work and launch it into the ether and it just, oh, I don't know why it doesn't work. Like you, you have to understand the game, be ethical at all times, but understand the game.
That is super interesting. I just wonder, so the way that I'm envisioning it is that you should be able to have options so you can switch between the types of algorithms. So yeah, I think that's brilliant. That's letting, what I'm going to do. the user, but understand the content creator is going to want data. Like, Somi, you've got to give me data on what people are choosing so I know how to optimize for my community, right? And you may say, no, that's private. We're not going to give that information. But then a whole slew of channels will pop up where they're commenting, guys, I'm telling you, the this is how people break down roughly 73% mm. use this algorithm, right? And they'll do that. So people are going to maximize no matter what you do, but maybe that's a better way, right? Let me decide yes. whether I want my For You page or I want uh, sequential, by all means, that, that sounds, it sounds like a very worthy thing to try. Whether it will work or not is a totally different question because you as an entrepreneur are now fighting for slices of time so you're competing against me because I'm building Kaizen and I don't want people spending their time in social media. I want them spending their time in Kaizen. You're competing against Elon Musk. He doesn't want people spending time on your social media. He wants them spending time on his social media. So it really does become a race for who can deliver a better experience to the people that are their customers. And you will then be in a battle of, okay, how can I both be ethical and deliver an experience that is so much more compelling as determined by key metrics that keep your business growing. It, this is such a complicated web. And I understand how everybody comes in like, oh, I'm going to change the world. My thing is, I, I live and die by this. Don't try to change behavior, try to leverage it. Mm, and once you know what people do, now how do you bring, so I'll give an example. So I know people are going to exist in metaverses in the next five to 10 years. It just is, it is. And if I walk people through what's going to happen with the technology, they will all go, yeah, that's, that is a hundred percent going to happen. Now they may be mad about it, but they're not going to disagree that it speaks to exactly how the dopamine reward system works. And they're all going to be like, yep, that, that's going to happen. And so now I'm like, okay, well, I know that's going to happen. How do I build something in that world that people are going to use, but I feel good about? So the phrase that we have come up with is, if you're winning in Project Kaizen, you should be winning in your real life. Now, if we can actually deliver against that, then now we've got something. I can feel good about how much time people spend in the system. I can feel good about pushing and promoting and trying to get more people in there, spending more time, more money, all of it, um, but really can stand there and go, it's making their life better. So that's always to young entrepreneurs, don't try to change behavior. That's what activists do try to leverage it. So they're going to do that thing. So this is what we did at Quest. Instead of trying to tell you don't eat junk food, I want to make junk food good for you. And to me, that's the play. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's why the way that I'm building this is not to necessarily compete with other platforms, but be a complementary to them. You know, that's why we are building tools really that isn't available on other places and it's more of a complementary and then there's the interoperability you know and that's what i like about web3 and uh, you know composability of uh, blockchain technology let's talk about project kaizen so uh, for people who may not know uh, explain what it is exactly where you're going with it how far you are in it and when you say that you want to build the next disney is that what you're talking about is that like are you going to build, build the next disney in web3 what does that look like okay so a lot of nested ideas that i think are worth teasing out one at a time so okay what do i mean when i say we're <clears throat> building the next disney 
So Disney told one kind of story over and over and over from a thousand different angles. And in doing so actually gave birth to a cultural movement that we would now call Americana. Now, for people that grew up with sort of the modern era of Disney, this won't make as much sense. But for people my generation, it was very clear. If I said I was going to go see a Sony movie, a Warner Brothers movie, a Paramount movie, you didn't know anything about it. But if I said I was going to go see a Disney movie until about 15, 20 years ago, that really meant something. You knew something about the movie already just by hearing that it was Disney. And so my thing was, okay, using that strategy, if they were able to create the most magical place on earth, could I use the same strategy to create the most empowering place on earth? So the, the idea, that core concept will be the same, but how it manifests in the real world, the odds of me building a physical Disneyland are virtually zero. It's going to be virtual, right? That's my trajectory. But I want to create a studio that generates IP and tells stories that deal with one theme. For us, that theme is all of us start weak and we have the opportunity to grow strong. And I'll call it empowerment. And so we just, we're going to tell stories of empowerment over and over and over and over and over and over and over from a thousand different angles, both from some of them will be comic books, some will be video games, some will be movies, TV shows, the whole gamut. Uh, and then other times it will just be different elements of that theme playing out within the story. So the theme behind Mary Mods is very different than the theme behind Project Kaizen, right? Same same core theme, but the way that we're exploring it on its face will sound different and it will feel different as a story. But main characters will go from weak to strong. And that's, that's always going to be our jam. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are we doing with Project Kaizen? So the easiest way to understand what Project Kaizen is... We are building what I think is the most self-evident direction that we're all headed in, which is Ready Player One, the book. And Ready Player One, the movie is very different. I could do a whole treatise on why I always go out of my way to say the book. Um, but suffice it to say, in the book, the experiences inside of the Oasis are far more intimate. And I think that's really what it's going to be. You're going to get players that create their own small intimate experiences. We will all fractionate out into you know, a gazillion of these smaller uh, experiences made by our, um, I mean, it, it really will end up being like this, you, an experience that your mom made, right? And you get to go experience like, what was her childhood like? Your best friend creates a game that's you know, an inside joke between 10 friends and you guys are gonna go play that game. So it's, it's gonna feel far more like that, but when you embed it in a story world, I think it gets far more interesting. And so Ready Player One, the book itself is the story. And then it it projects a future that I think is going to be real. But Ready Player One, the sort of news article would not be nearly as compelling as Ready Player One, the story that happens to be about the technology. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're creating a container of technology that we want to give to our players so that they can go and build their own experiences, right? Roblox, everybody's familiar with the model, but we want to embed that inside of a larger story world. We think we have the, the sort of ultimate, I don't think there's ever going to be a better story structure where players can create within this world, but literally create whatever they want while still being consistent with the story. Um, than what we've created. That that just, I think it, it really is the ultimate model for that. Now, whether people will care or not is a totally different question. Uh, but I think that, that we've really set this up well. Um, and the only thing that I think Ready Player One, the book got wrong is everything is imagined as being in VR. And I don't think that's going to happen. So what we call the emergent phenomenon that is rising out of the collision of the blockchain 
AI and the new development tools that exist inside of the game engines like Unreal Engine 5.2, which is what we're developing on, it gives birth to something that we call borderless entertainment. And borderless entertainment isn't something that we're inventing. Again, it really is something that will emerge out of the this unique moment, this unique technological moment. But I think that we're pretty early to the party. And so in many ways, we're going to help define it. Uh, there are three components to borderless entertainment. Number one is that it really is borderless, meaning your game experiences are no longer going to be confined to VR or your computer or your console. Uh, it's going to be something that, thanks to the blockchain and AR, can really hand off between the game world, the real world, and back again. And so it will partly be in VR, but I think it will largely be in AR. And at least the kind of experiences that we think borderless entertainment gives birth to, the vast majority of them will be some sort of mixed reality engagement. It isn't going to be a strict console thing because, and the, the key word that we use is inhabit. So you're really going to inhabit these worlds. And to inhabit these worlds, you have to break this sense of, oh, I'm at my computer and therefore I can engage with the game. And what we wanna switch that to is I have time right now and regardless of where I am, I can engage with the IP. So it can be on a story level, it can be on a gaming level, it can be on the sort of hardcore part of the game, it could be on a much lighter mobile version of the game. Um, it could be a, a just pure AR, like cut sequence that I'm engaging with because of my geography, or I could trigger something because you walk 10,000 steps. Like when I have like a full hour to talk about this, like I can lay out pictures for people of just how ingrained all of this stuff is gonna be in our day-to-day -day lives. It's, it's really gonna be pretty extraordinary. And so the one thing I will say to you as a side, I know we're gonna talk more about this later, Web3 as a name is dead, but really what happened is all the moronic activity that people were doing, trying to make Web3 a top-down movement about it has to be like this. Oh, and by the way, it's all about money. That, that was destined to fail. And when I started saying that in the beginning, people were deriding me, making fun of me. Um, uh, my famous thing that I, I always repeat is they were telling me I wasn't allowed to use their memes. And I was just like, oh my God, they don't understand. If you make this about money, it is going to burn out. This has to be about emotional connection. And so anyway, I felt like I was screaming into the void for a while. Um, and it, it just is what it is. Like human nature is human nature. And if it's about money, it will turn into the stock market. The SEC will smash that with a big fat hammer. It's never going to be that. And what it is though, if you understand the technology is it makes something plausible. And that thing is again, borderless entertainment. So, all right, being borderless is the first thing. The second thing is that it is a truly living world. And this comes down to really AI and the changes that um, Unreal and Unity's tools make available. So that game development just happens so much faster. So with some of the tools that have been released, you can update a game world in real time. So you can just drag something and it will automate different pathing things like that. It, it is unbelievable. And for people that haven't looked into it, your jaw will hit the floor when you see what's possible now and just how fast you can procedurally generate a massive space, move things around however you want, and they will algorithmically update instantly right before your eyes. It's unbelievable. So that married with characters that are driven by AI, and, and it's important for me to note, I'm talking about where things are going to be in three years, more than just where they are right now. But 
whenever you're developing something, you want to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is currently. So when I talk, I can't help but slide into what we're building towards. So you're going to have characters that pass the touring test. So they will feel as real to you as your friends. And this is where we get into the idea of the games are going to have memory. So they're going to have AI characters that feel real to you. You're building a relationship with them over time. Your relationship with that character will be different than somebody else's relationship with that character. So there's both a shared world where we all know that character, but then an intimate personal world where I have a different relationship with that character than you do. That brings us to the third element, which these are going to be hyper tailored worlds. So given the nature of the blockchain and digital assets, now you can build a library of assets that you have that nobody else has. And the game will react differently to you based on what you hold in your wallet and anywhere that you can take your digital assets, which is anywhere that you can take your phone. Now the game experience can follow you. And so we get back to that point of like, hey, if you and I met, and let's say that you played Project Kaizen, you might say anybody else that I meet that has what we call our mesh type. It's like a class in a video game. That's my same class. And let's say that you're a hacker, uh, which I think would be very fitting with your technical abilities. Uh, if you were a hacker mesh type, you could say, hey, anybody else that's a hacker mesh type, I want them to be able to see this character standing behind me. But if anybody else either isn't a Kaizen player or doesn't have my mesh type, they don't see anything or they see something else. Right. And so you can create all this highly customizable stuff. And then based on what you have, and for anybody watching this that that is tracking Kaizen, uh, I will just give something away. Uh, your symbols are going to matter. And so if you're wearing an item that's a certain symbol uh, and take certain actions in the game, which I will want people to discover for themselves, the game will respond differently to you than somebody who takes that same action but doesn't have that same symbol represented on their outfit. So and, and that is the tip of, of just an absolutely gigantic iceberg. But from what I can see right now, the emergent phenomena is, is those three things. And again, because this isn't us making this up, this is just what I predict will happen given the nature of the technology stack and human nature. I think that's where this goes. And so you put those three things together and you have a completely new form of entertainment that I think speaks more to... Uh, human psychology, it will be far more fun. It will be far more engaging. People can express themselves far more deeply. We talk about the, the core of Project Kaizen is express and progress. So we want people to be able to express themselves, to dress the way they want, look the way they want, create mini games in the way that they want, um, build a personal space the way they want, invite people into their space that they like, that they want to be there but then also that they can progress in a traditional game mechanic way so that the things they do both in-game and out-of-game help them progress their character. That's super interesting. So the, the three things that you mentioned, just to recap. A borderless experience. Borderless, yeah. The world feels alive. Mm -hmm, and then it's hyper-tailored to the individual. So hyper-personalized uh, there, there is the hyper-personalization thanks to AI. There is the VR and AR element. And then there is the borderless thanks to blockchain. So this is basically, we are talking about blockchain, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and AI, AI, these three things. Yeah, and the gaming tools. That That's another big one. And then AI in a way that we haven't talked about yet, which is how rapidly I can create a game asset. 
So a game asset will traditionally take, I mean, for a lame game asset, it's going to take me two weeks easily just to get it modeled, UV textured, all that, you know, any collision or properties that you want to add to it. Whereas now with AI, I could create from uh, a sketch literally on a napkin, I could create uh, a 3D model in, in minutes. Yeah. You upload yeah. the image, you tell AI, this is what it is. Uh, you can you know, do some prompting. It will create the 3D model. You then export the 3D model into Blender. You can make whatever changes you want and import it into the game. You know, And, and literally 10 minutes later, you have a new game asset. It, it is absolutely bonkers how fast you can do this stuff. And that's what you can do today. So it won't be long. And people are already playing with text to world. So you can just describe a world and it will generate a 3D world that you can actually walk around in. It's insane. Now there are still things you have to do to it and it's a little bit awkward and it looks kind of warped, but it won't be long before they start working those kinks out. I think in the next three to five years, you can literally like anybody can build a game. Facts. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what you're describing is Project Kaizen basically like a metaverse, like you're building your own. Yeah. I hate that word, but yeah, yes, that, that certainly know. gets you close. It's a just a spatial experience. It'll be a spatial experience, um, but more importantly, it will be a. It, it will. It's not going to become the thing that people mean when they say metaverse until there are standards, so that my character will render in your world as rapidly as it will render in mine. So it's really, if I'm being honest, no one until you're doing something that is standardized. No one is going to be able to do anything other than build their corner of a metaverse. And where we'll all meet is in the real world through augmented reality. And so that's where this starts to get interesting because then it's just as long as you render in whatever device they're wearing, all of it's going to display and you're going to be able to see it. But um, the thought of combat being cross like game is not real at all but that's where these intimate experiences become important because that can be truly interoperable with different assets and things like that we we need some standards for you to render correctly um but through partnerships and things we're already doing like the first step of that kind of thing um so yeah i i always push back a little on the idea of a metaverse yeah. but that gets you close enough yeah 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 exactly i know what you mean um so let's talk a little bit about your thoughts on the blockchain technology i'm so bullish on this technology the technology itself i think it's incredible the first time i read a book about blockchain it blew my mind i was like oh my god my time has come. I'm going to finally, you know, I'm going to be able to disrupt Amazon. I'm going to be able to disrupt Facebook. And the reason why that was so important to me was because I think I, I gave you a little bit of my background when, when we spoke uh, at Beacon. That it was basically, um, I grew up in Iran. Uh, I was there until I was 23. There were so many things I couldn't do. When I came to the UK, it took me 11 years to become a British citizen. I couldn't start a business. There were like so many opportunities that I missed. Um, and even after I became a British citizen, like for example, in 2021, I wanted to go to um, NFT NYC. I went to get my ESTA because I was a British citizen. I thought I could just get ESTA and go. Turns out I couldn't because I was born in Iran. So it took me 10 months to get a US visa. So I missed, uh, so I spent about, this was the, in the bull market. I spent $300,000 on uh, NFTs so that I could go to the, a lot of the NFT 
um, you know, uh, conferences and, and um, events so that I could meet the people that I wanted to meet as I was building this platform. I missed that opportunity. All of those NFTs went to zero, you know, like most of them. And so I lost $300,000 worth of, you know, NFTs and I couldn't go to any of the events. So, so that goes to show like the level of, you know, when you talk about biases, discrimination, it's not that somebody necessarily discriminates against you directly. It's just the consequences of being born in a location and being born a certain gender or, or being an immigrant of a certain place that really closes so many doors to you. So I felt like I missed the boat on Web2. So when Zuckerberg was building, I was trying to get out of the country, you know. So I was always looking for an opportunity uh, to uh, build. I taught myself Python. And then, of course, I studied political philosophy and philosophy of science and technology. And I taught myself all these things so that when the moment came, I could finally build. And when I learned about blockchain, I was like, my moment has arrived. This is this is the time I'm going to finally build something. And I was so bullish about Web3 and, and blockchain. But when I went deeper into it, the human behavior, you know, the the seeing the Moloch, the, you know, the, that idea of um, the game theory uh, and the fact that we can now create money with blockchain technology. Now anybody can create money, you know, essentially you can create these tokens and you're creating value. So that is leading to, uh, and it's bringing out a side of human psyche and human behavior that is destroying, in my opinion, the potential of this technology in a in a very negative way. So um, I'd like to get your thoughts on what I just uh, described here, and what's your thoughts on on this this technology? Are you still bullish on it? Yeah, the the funny thing is, so people let themselves get caught up in hype cycles, and they don't look at the fundamentals always think from first principles. So what made me get into digital assets was recognizing the nature of the blockchain itself. Once I understood that the nature of the blockchain itself was to bring the laws of physics into the digital world, I was like, oh my God, all of a sudden now, digital items have the same kind of value that physical items have. And it's this idea of irreversible transactions. So we don't think about what makes the real world work because it just works and we take it for granted. But the reality is if you step off of the roof, that's an irreversible transaction. You are going down. The laws of gravity just dictate you're going down until you hit something. And when in the digital world, you can just copy ones and zeros, you can move them wherever you want. So suddenly everything is, is eternal. Everything is infinitely replicatable and for better or worse, that means that it doesn't have any value to us. And I don't just mean financial value. I mean, it just doesn't have value. Like it's it all the markers that we use as a species to track value requires a few things about it. It, it has to be uh, somewhat scarce. It has to be um, fragile isn't quite the right word, but that gets close. And we have to know who has it. We have to know what it does. We have to know where it is. And if it is all things everywhere all at once, then uh, you know, think like oxygen. You don't think about oxygen, care about oxygen until you can't get it. So it is suddenly it becomes very valuable because it is scarce, but it wasn't the second before that, right? You totally took it for granted and never think about it, whatever. 
And so that's what happened with the digital world. So once the blockchain came along and added the physical properties, obviously not one for one, but it brought the same idea of irreversible transactions. So now if I burn something, like if I burn my sweater in real life, it's really burned forever. If I burn a you know NFT with the blockchain, then it's really burned forever. It's gone. Like there's no getting it back. And so that idea really, all of a sudden people pay attention and it matters. And so once you can make the digital world matter, now a whole slew of things open up before you. So I saw that and was like, oh my God, I know where this goes from an entertainment perspective, because that's the part that I care about. I see where this is going to go from an entertainment perspective. I'm all in. And so since nothing in my thesis about the technology and what it can do has changed, my feelings about it haven't changed. But what I will say is whenever something like this starts, where you like think about the birth of the internet, right? All these companies explode. Everybody wants it. It's all about money in the beginning. And, and that's that. And everybody's interested in that. You get the internet bubble at burst and everybody's like, oh, see, I told you it was a fad and everybody gets cleaned out and oh, it's terrible, terrible. And then of course, over time, it turns into the most revolutionary technology since the atom bomb. So it's like, yeah, internet's pretty real. But in 2000, it was looking like a scam, right? So I think that's exactly where we are with this. People were looking at, oh, it could make me, I could secure the bag, right? And that's what everybody was focused on, not thinking about, is this going to give birth to something that people will care about? So the internet gives us not only uh, quick access to information, but it gave birth to Uber, right? Something that I rely on constantly. And so it's not financially valuable to me. I don't own a single share of Uber, but I use Uber. And so my call to what would have then identified itself as the Web3 industry, you know, whatever, uh, almost two years ago now, was what are people going to do? Like if all they're going to do is sell, this, is, this has no future. If, on the other hand, that they can build something that people want and it's different and better, then it, it has a chance. And so I would just say, look at the technology and ask yourself, what does this make possible that is different and better? Focus all your time and energy on that. And then it's like, the world's either going to care or they're not. So my thing is, no one should know or care whether something's web two or web three. They should just know this experience is superior than other things in its genre. And oh, under the hood, it's web three. Amazing. That's how I think about it. Yeah, I agree with you. And ultimately, we are going. our lives is going to become more digital, not less digital. Correct. Yeah. So we need a way to replicate the laws of physics in the digital realm. So that's where this technology is valuable. But but then there's also the, the fact that it also is democratizing, creating money, you know, and creating value. In sort of. So what it does is it allows anybody to create a potential store of value. But the key is that it's a potential store of value. So what people have to understand is, is, again, going back to that nature of value. So there are things that are uh, intrinsically valuable, like the thing itself is valuable to me, maybe because it's edible and I can sustain my life, or maybe because it has emotional resonance and it's a toy that I had as a kid, or it was my child's toy and they've moved on. And now the only thing that I have in my house to remind me of, you know, my now 20 something is, is this toy that they had. And so it is truly irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. So one, just understanding that there's two kinds of value. And I think people often get them mixed up. They hear value, they think money, which is a mistake because the vast majority of the things you interact with in your life do not have financial value to anybody other than you. 
Um, so that's one. And then two is understanding why did gold become a store of value? And why is fiat currency not a store of value, right? So you get into this whole rabbit hole of, of money. So the reason that gold is a store of value is we very quickly realize a world where we can all specialize is far more efficient. So I don't wanna have to make all my clothes. I don't wanna have to make all my food, right? I'm gonna serve some role in society so that other people don't have to do this thing. I will do that thing, but you guys do the other things. So we need a medium of exchange. And so then you get something like gold where it's like, okay, this gold, I mean, I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole. This gold is proof of work, proof that I mined it, but then also proof that it's rare so you can't inflate it away. Now, how does gold come into existence? A star has to explode. Like once people understand, gold is an exploded star. It's however many millions or billions of years ago, a star exploded, it rained gold onto this planet, got lodged in the crust, right? That's what gold is. Okay, so we have this thing that we've just, every society has realized, nah, seashells, you can find too many of them, glass, you can actually make. So it's like this thing, it's hard to replicate an exploding star. So we have this thing that's scarce. It also, you can melt it, reconstitute it. It's very resilient, it doesn't rot. So cool, it's gonna move across time well, but it doesn't move across space well. So it's heavy. So we end up coming up with things like paper money that's originally backed by gold. So I want everybody to understand, one, while gold does have some intrinsic properties, it's really, it's scarcity is what we care about. And then we go, hey, this thing, we're all gonna agree is worth nine uh, oranges or whatever. And so now we have this you know, medium of exchange where it can buy pants, shoes, water, whatever that we want. Uh, but then we create these abstractions, which are easier to carry across time, but they're just abstractions. So paper money uh, already has a problem because it can rot or, you know, whatever can happen to paper currency. But fiat currency, which is even worse because fiat currency is not backed by anything other than the decree of the government. So fiat literally means by decree. So the government says this has value. Now, both gold and paper money only have value if we all agree it has value. And so this brings us back to what you were saying about the blockchain. The blockchain allows me to, to effectively explode a star and say, there are only so many of this thing. It's knowable. It's on chain. You can look at it. You can see, you can know that the one you have is real. Okay, but if we all say, yeah, but that's not worth anything, then it really isn't worth anything instantly overnight. So it's only potential value. And that value, as anybody that holds Bitcoin will tell you, can go up or down. Now, gold, I'm sure there was a period in history where it was volatile and it went up and down, but over time, it really gets stable. And so you don't invest in gold because you want to make a lot of money because it's way too stable for that. You invest in gold because you want to hedge against inflation is one of the reasons you might want to keep it. You also might want to keep it for anti-seizure, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so you understand the different properties of these different um, stores of value. Some are gonna be better at taking it across time. Some aren't, some are gonna be better at taking it across space, some aren't. So I just want people to understand, I do not advise, first of all, I'm not a financial advisor. Let me be very clear about that. Um, but I would really, really be careful about trying to capitalize on the volatility of an unknown coin. Because you can make money in volatility, but you can also lose a lot. So you have to be very careful. Yeah, definitely. Let's bring the conversation to an end with you telling people what's on your mind right now. What's the most important thing 
you know, like most of my audience tend to be at the moment in Web3. We also have an audience of people who are interested in Web3 or in technology in general. We talked about Project Kaizen. What's the action that you would like them to take? Is it follow you on Twitter? The most important thing as it relates to Web3 is learn the technology and then build something. Even if you don't build it to sell it, like you will have a grasp of that technology that's far ahead of everybody else. Learn about AI, please. AI is literally going to eat everybody's lunch that doesn't learn how to use it. Uh, so that is going to be really important. If you want to follow me at Tom Bilyeu across every social around. Um, but before we go, I do want to touch on uh, the thing that you alluded to earlier, which is what I really hope people take away from your story is not that uh, it's harder to be a woman. Maybe it is. It's not that it's harder to be born in Iran. Maybe it is. What I hope people take away from that is despite everything that was stacked against you, you still persisted. And because you persisted, you've been able to accomplish incredible things. So that to me, I just want everybody to focus on that idea. It, it's what I call the only belief that matters, that if you put time and attention into getting better at something, you will actually get better at that thing. And we all have things that are stacked against us, but you can get so good that nobody can stop you. And I want your story to be proof that you can get so good at something that people can't stop you no matter what. So all of us can make excuses, right? It, it, if you look for reasons to fail, they will be there. If yeah. you look for reasons to succeed, they will be there. So it, it ultimately what you see is determined by what you look for. Yes, exactly. And we can we can do a whole, whole uh, conversation just about the empowerment and, and that topic another time. But um, thank you so much, Tom. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tom Bilio. Be sure to subscribe to his YouTube channel and check out the Impact Theory special access information in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Aryan Show.